Thank you for listening to the Renovation Church podcast. We're a family that believes you matter, and together we can do something that matters. We hope that this podcast aids you in your spiritual journey toward Jesus. If we can serve you on that journey, please let us know by visiting our website, renovationchurch.com. We always love to hear how the ministry of renovation is impacting your life. The best way to let us know is by leaving a review or tagging us on social media. Wherever you are in the world, know that Jesus loves you and we love you. Enjoy the podcast. Even in this very complicated text that you would work, that you would speak, that you would make your presence plain and known and that whatever message you are communicating through the story of Tamar in Judah, that we would see it, but more than that, that we would see how you are at work in and through them and how you can and will continue to be at work in and through us. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. To what lengths would you go to get your rights? That's kind of the overarching question. To what lengths would you go to get your rights? To what lengths would you go to make sure what was right happened? Even if it meant that you had to go about it the wrong way. That is the question kind of hanging over this moment. Now, on the world stage of seeking rights, what I'm about to share with you is child's play, but it's a little bit from my own story. You see, back at the University of Oklahoma, we had some tension on our wrestling team. And, and, and even though my coach, who I love very much, and, and, and he was not a racist, I need to say that, he was not a racist, he was never a racist man, but there were some things that he did sometimes, said sometimes, that could be perceived that way. And like several of the other athletes of color on our team, we wanted that neutralized, we wanted that stopped. And one of our teammates, he was a little more radical, and he started going to great lengths to curb this behavior, to get our rights, to, to make sure that we were recognized on our team just like everybody else. And some of his methods, well, they were wrong. In fact, I didn't agree with his methods. And yet I found myself in a peculiar position where I knew that what he was doing would ultimately arrive at the end that I desired, but the way he was doing it, I did not agree with. It was morally tenuous. It was morally complicated ground. He was doing the right thing the wrong way. He was seeking the right thing the wrong way. He was doing the wrong thing for the right outcome. And I was caught in a moment having to make a choice, having to decide where I was going to stand. And so like an episode of succession... For those of you who are fans, I found myself playing all sides. I found myself having to talk to coach a little bit to, to make sure that he knew that I was not against him, that I was for him, that I loved him. But I found myself egging my teammate on at the same time. Now, the reason I'm being a little vague here is because, well, that particular teammate is fairly well known. And I want to protect his honor and his integrity by not saying his name. But I find myself in the middle of their struggle, playing both sides of the equation so that ultimately we could get what was right. And we did. It cost a lot. It shed a lot. There was a lot of complication and difficulty. But eventually we found ourselves in a situation 
where we ended up with what was right, even though the lead person on the issue was doing it the wrong way. Why do I share that story with you? Because I don't know how many of you relate to that morally dubious behavior at that level, but every one of you, every single one of you, I can guarantee has found yourself in a moment where you felt that you either had to be deceptive or you chose to be deceptive, particularly if you believe that it was going to get the outcome that you believe. Was right. You have shaded the truth. At times, in an effort to achieve a noble outcome. And that's what I want to put your minds around as we prepare to engage this story. The, the, the reality that, listen, all of us have done the wrong thing for what we believed were the right reasons. Every single one of us. Every single one of us has done the wrong thing for what we believe are the right reasons. Where does God stand on that? In fact, the question arises, as we will see develop more in the story from the Bible that I want to share with you, is this. How does God view that deception? Is it black and white? Deceivers out? Objectively truthful people in? Or is it a bit more of a shade of gray? Does deception disqualify you and I from the story that God is telling in and through our lives? I'll ask one more question. If you do the right thing the wrong way, is the outcome wrong? Those questions are where we find ourselves in Tamar's story as we attempt to answer them, but here's what we will see with certainty today, that God does not cancel his plans when his people do the wrong thing for the right reasons. Listen, even though they are wrong, God does not cancel people. The theme of deception, which occurs many times in Genesis, is on feature here in Tamar's story. The writer of Genesis opens the story by setting the context and the timestamp. For those of you who might not be familiar uh, with the Bible, or maybe it's just been a long time since you read it, or maybe you're just not familiar with this part of the Bible, what directly precedes this story of Judah and Tamar is the story of Judah's younger brother and favorite son of their father, Joseph, who has been sold into slavery as an alternative to murdering him. Great start to the story. And even though that story is not our focus today, it's purposely tied in. And you can see that by flipping the page of Genesis 38 in either direction and noting that both before and after this story of Judah and Tamar is the story of Joseph, his younger brother. Now, we don't know the totality of the circumstances that we engage here in Genesis 38, chapter 1, where it says that Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. We don't know the totality of the circumstances that caused him to leave, but, but it's not a stretch 
to think that the events surrounding his younger brother being sold into slavery caused him eventually to want to separate himself from the rest of his family. Maybe it was guilt. Maybe it was shame. Maybe it was pride. We don't know the reason. All we know is that directly after convincing his other siblings to not murder his younger brother, but instead sell him to slavery in Egypt, Judah picks up and he leaves. There's some complicated family dynamics in Genesis, aren't there? Some with, maybe we can relate, where we felt like the very best place for us was to love our loved ones from a distance. Maybe some of you can relate to that today. What we know is that he left his family. He left his father mourning. And it seems he left the sense of himself, as we'll see his character develop in just a few sentences. We don't know who Hira is, but we do know that he was a friend of Judah and perhaps the man that introduced him to his wife, Bathsheba. Now, uncharacteristic of many of the narratives in Genesis, after we get this brief, brief introduction, the story just lurches forward. It lurches forward to the next part of this narrative, and it tells us that after Judah met his wife, Shua, and married Shua, and had a, a, a sexual encounter with her, she became pregnant and she gave birth to a son. His name was Ur. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and his name was Onan. And again, to another son, and his name was Shelah. In rapid succession, we see that Judah has moved. Judah has met a friend. Judah has met a woman. Judah has started a family. Judah has progressed with his life after the actions that took place in Genesis 37. And then soon, it tells us, that Judah moves to acquire a wife for his eldest son. But taken into consideration, all that happens in about what amounts to 20 years in Genesis 38, it is likely that Ur was married earlier than customary. Now, this story is already replete with so many questions about Judah's decision-making and the state of his heart and now it surfaces in silence the condition of their home. What do I mean by that? Well, in Genesis chapter 38, it tells us that he had incredible trouble with his children. That Ur was married early and, and, and that something was deeply wrong with the way that Ur was raised. In fact, something was so deeply wrong with the way that Ur was raised that the Bible says what? That God was instrumental in his death. Let me slow down just for a moment. And I ask you to experience the texture of this story. This man has sold his own brother into slavery. This man has abandoned his family, maybe out of guilt for what he did. This man has married this pagan woman outside of the family of God. And now, 
the children that he is raising, the eldest is so wicked that God himself takes him out of this world. You know, as I thought about this, and the difficulty of even reading that, I, I thought to myself, well, how, how can a child become so wicked? What did Judah do wrong? Maybe everything, maybe nothing. There's a little note here for us as parents, especially if we understand the scriptures. We understand that in Romans 8.22, it says that the earth itself is under the groaning of the sin of the world that has consumed it. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says that sin came into the world through one man. And so, yes, sometimes we have incredible influence over our children and their choices, and sometimes we have zero control. Let me just give you a little note today that I hope would be helpful. It is realizing that children are our stewardship, not our ownership. Children are our stewardship, not our ownership. And so even though we cannot be personally responsible for every choice they ever make, we still have a responsibility to try and steward them in a way that forms them in a way that produces not only a love for God, but flourishing for other people. And yet we see that something went wrong with her. In fact, I wonder to myself as I read this, is, is maybe the reason Judah married him off so early is because he saw very early in his life that there was something deeply disturbed and he hoped that by settling him down, it might create some type of reformation. Unfortunately, that's not what happened. Unfortunately, his unexplained death because of the nature of the evil inside of him left this young woman, Tamar, a very young widow. Here enters our primary character and the woman around which this story centers. And here enters also the idea of a liberate marriage. Now, that's not just a big word, just for big word's sake. It's a biblical context described first in Deuteronomy 25. You can go and read it for yourself and observed in some meaningful way in the account of Genesis before that. As reflected in Deuteronomy, this was a law that covered the obligation of a family to take care of a woman who had married into the family and the husband of that woman dies. And rather than being sent outside of the clan to try and find a new husband or worse still, ending up in some desperate position of, of prostituting themselves because of the relative vulnerability of women in that time and in those societies... There was a provision. There was a provision made for them that as a childless widow, they could remain under the covering of the family and they could be remarried and not be alone. Now, I know, I know that that feels archaic and paternalistic to us, right? A woman can go out and get her own. Well, yes, in our society. 
But back then, the three most vulnerable populations in the world, and you see it over and over again in the Old Testament, and, and to some degree still today, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you'll see this over and over again. Widows, orphans, and immigrants. Widows, orphans, and immigrants. Take care of the widows and the orphans and the immigrants. See about the widows and the orphans and the immigrants. Make sure the widows and the orphans and the immigrants. Make sure they're okay. And so as archaic and patriarchal as the idea of levirate marriage might seem to us, back then it was a provision to be a solution to a problem for the world as it was. Because a woman then, without a husband, was vulnerable to further trauma or outright destitution. But through this provision of leverage marriage, it provides a suitable husband from the clan or the family. And so at the time of Judah, it was his responsibility then to ensure that Tamar would not be left out destitute, but that she would actually be cared for and have an opportunity to produce an heir to, to be a part of the family from which she came. And so Judah did what was his fundamental duty. The writer of Genesis tells us that after Ur died, Judah said to, to his son, uh, 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 Onan, to take his sister-in-law as a wife. But it turns out, and again, this is why I pointed this out in, in the first part of this when we talked about Ur, it turns out that whatever happened in this home environment, well, it deeply affected Onan as well. In fact, look what the scripture says here. It says that Onan was not willing to have a child. So Onan was not willing to obey the law that, that he was called to obey by virtue of what he said he believed. He was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. And so whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. And this prevented her from having a child who would belong to Onan's brother, Listen to this. One of these boys played the part of husband, but only to the degree of his self-satisfaction. He refused to father children who were not his own. The other was said to be so wicked that God himself had to enter in his death. What is happening in this home? Well, some of those questions may be answered as you see Judah's own character further developed. But, but looking at Onan, it says that though he was repeatedly sexually intimate with Tamar, making her believe that he was doing his duty, he would rather release away from her than into his wife. Now, it says that Onan, too, was evil in God's eyes, and because he was evil in God's eyes, then he too had to go. I'm aware of the many ways this passage has been used to create and provoke fear and shame about, you know, the subject of self-stimulation. But what the flow of the narrative reveals has nothing to do with that. It's actually twofold. First, Onan's actions frustrated God's plan. Judah is the carrier of the royal line, which you can read more about in Genesis chapter 49. 
And if Judah, foolish and sinful as he was, did not produce an heir, listen, the direct line to Jesus was disrupted. That's the first issue. The second issue is that his actions frustrate the very purposes of the Leverett institution and his marriage itself. And what that did, and this is so important and why you need to see what the Bible actually says about women and their value, what that did was allow him to treat Tamar as little more than a sexual object rather than a wife. And God said, no, I can't have that. I can't have that. And the presumption then is a hard and unrepentant heart left God with one decision. In fact, further, just to screw the uncomfortable screw just a little tighter, according to two passages in Leviticus, let me read them to you, Leviticus 18.16 and Leviticus 20.21, If they did not produce an heir, it suddenly puts their sexual relationship in the realm of incestuous, as though it wasn't strange enough already. All of this has happened in just a few spans of a few years, and now Onan, too, dies. Much of what happened to Judah, he certainly brought on himself. But if there's any compassion for him, we can ask the question, what headspace is he in right now? What headspace would you be in? His brother Joseph is a slave in Egypt, possibly dead. He was instrumental in putting him there. His father is in a state of perpetual mourning. He has fled his home and his family to start again, only to carry forward his own brokenness and sin patterns into the lives of his children. And now two of those children are dead, and both are considered evil by God. This is heavy stuff. He has only one son left, Sheila. And I'm going to encourage you as parents to ask yourselves, if you are parents, what headspace would you be in? Well, as we talked about last time we were together, that old monster fear rears its head. And it says there in Genesis 38, 11, that Judah was afraid that he, his son Sheila, would also die. And so even though he told Tamar to go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Sheila is old enough to marry you, he never intended to do that. He told her a bold-faced lie because he was afraid. Sound familiar? These are our patriarchs. (laughs) These are the people who are the founders of our faith. He deceives this woman and sends her to a life of perpetual widowhood with no intent to do any differently, refusing his duty as a father-in-law. Tamar does as she's instructed. She returns to her parents' home, waiting in hope for the chance to marry Judah's youngest son. And during this time, she's not allowed to remarry. She's not allowed to marry outside of the clan. She has submitted herself to this liberate law. She is technically engaged to Sheila, a third man from the same family. All the while, she was also required to wear clothing that would immediately identify to anyone looking that she was indeed a widow. What a horrible situation 
for anyone, particularly a woman who has lost two husbands to be in. A status of both pity and misery. Well, several years passed. Sheila comes of age. And though Tamar had not been contacted by her father-in-law in all that time, we find out that Bethshua, his wife, passes away. We read that together at the top of our time. Judah has his period of mourning for the death of his wife, and after he found some sense of comfort, he decided to travel northeast with his friend Hira to go up and shear his sheep. Can you put yourself in Tamar's shoes? Can you imagine her frustration and desperation after all these years have passed? What would you do to get what was right? Would you deceive someone to make them do what you knew was right. Well, the Bible tells us that Tamar made no move while Bathsheba was still alive. But she was well aware that she should have been married by that time. And so she decided to act. Someone told her where uh, Judah would be. And she made a plan. She said that, that to herself, you know what? I'm going to get him to do right by me. She took off her widow's clothes. She went up to Timnah and sat on the side of the road. She veiled her face, which was a common practice at that time for women who practiced temple prostitution. And temple prostitution was a specific type of ritualistic prostitution. Sure enough, Judah comes walking by and he notices her. And the text is very careful to emphasize that Judah didn't know who she was and that if he had known it was his own daughter-in-law, then he wouldn't have slept with her. Nonetheless, he does turn to Tamar, believing she's a prostitute. And as we read together, he very blatantly asked for sex. You have to ask yourself, These the people God chooses. Really? The Noah situation was enough. And then we have Abraham pseudo-sex trafficking his wife twice and sending his first son and his mother out into the desert to die. And now the man whose line carried the seed of Jesus is buying a prostitute on the side of the road after raising two men who was so wicked that God himself intervened in the ending of their life. And after failing to fulfill his duty to getting his daughter-in-law married to his youngest son and selling his younger brother into slavery, say it again, these are the people that God chooses. How? Why? Because God chooses incredibly questionable, morally dubious, significantly broken people to do. God chooses incredibly questionable, morally dubious, significantly broken people to do remarkable things. And it doesn't add up for us. It doesn't make sense in our mind. But that's what God does. And so the question I would ask you is, why not you?
Why not me? This is just a little thread of hope in one of the most broken stories in the Bible that even if we trust God with our lowest moments, that he can make something beautiful from them. Well, if we have any compassion for Judah in this moment, we can acknowledge that this is an impulse act on his part. It, it, it says that he wasn't even prepared to pay her. He had to put a down payment, as it were, and promise her something in the future. Well, Tamar's immediate reaction is that she couldn't depend on what he was saying. And why was she? He had never been dependable. And so she said to him, give me your signet, right? That's a clay marker that would have been akin to a driver's license back in that day. And give me your staff. You give me those as a pledge, and then you can pick them up later when you send the payment of this young goat. Judah believed that this woman was simply a shrine prostitute. And he was willing to lay his name on the line just to sleep with her. It becomes pretty apparent how far this man had fallen and how far he had come undone. Well, after their sexual encounter, the Bible tells us in verse 19 that That Tamar returned to her role as, as, a, uh, as a scorned widow. Judah, on the other hand, wanted to reclaim his property. And so he sent his friend. This is another issue I had with the entire story. Instead of going himself, he sent his friend to take the goat and to collect his property. He had completely washed his hands of the situation. But when they went to look for her, they said that they couldn't find her. In fact, the Bible will tell you when you read it for yourself that the people in the area said there had never even been a prostitute in that area. Well, both Hira and Judah are baffled. They don't know what to do, but they think, well, okay, sarah, sarah. It's over. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to move on. Well, about three months go by. And Judah's told that Tamar's pregnancy has become publicly known. And as she was still responsible to her father-in-law for her actions under Leverite law, he would have to know. In fact, the scriptures tell us that, that she was told, that he was told that she was actually selling sex. And what's his response? You can read it for yourself. Take her out and let her be burned. What kind of man is this? You are unrighteous. Your kids were unrighteous. You have done wrong by this woman. And now you think that she's done something ill and vile and your response is have her burned. I'm going to keep saying it. I'm going to keep saying it. These are the people that God chooses. It makes no sense. But you see, Tamar, Tamar was smart. And the dramatic denouement comes as Tamar, who has sustained a remarkable restraint, sends a message to her father-in-law as they're taking her out to kill her. 
and says, the man who owns these things is the one who made me pregnant. Look closely whose seal and cord and walking stick these are. Judah is at once confronted with overwhelming and unimpeachable evidence. Or as the kids would say, she's got screenshots of the DMs. He has no way out. He has no way around it. He's trapped. That that clay signet is as good as a driver's license or a real ID today. And so what choice does he have? But to admit in front of everybody, she is more righteous than I am. Righteous here refers to her keeping the leveret law of marriage. And Tamar's deceitful but heroic effort, listen, to satisfy the obligation of bearing an heir for her late husband. Judah, on the other hand, has admitted that he did not keep his own faith practice. As he withheld his youngest son, he admitted that his actions had driven Tamar to deception and entrapment. In a sense, he's saying that this Canaanite woman was more concerned with maintaining my family line than I was. Surely, she is right. Just as an aside, it's important to note that they didn't continue in some sexual or even marital relationship. It says there that Judah never slept with Tamar again. And when we compare the close of Genesis 38, the birth of Tamar's twin boys, and the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, you can see that the quote seed, first mentioned in Genesis 3.15, came through Judah, then through the younger of Tamar's boys, Perez. And I want you to remember that name, Perez, because it's going to surface again when we get to the story of Rahab here in a couple of weeks. As sordid and disreputable as the events of Genesis 38 may be, they show that Judah, while unconcerned with the divine plan of God and the responsibility of proliferating his progeny, Tamar was concerned. And it became necessary that she deceitfully preserved his family line. Now, listen, you have to be quietly asking yourself right now, what is going on here? This story is insane. You would expect even that the twin sons of this incestuous relationship where this woman has now been sexually intimate with three men from the same family in two generations, you would expect that these sons would be hidden away, locked away, maybe even not even mentioned in the Bible. And yet here we are to understand that the messianic line continues through Tamar's son Perez. Listen, God did not have a cleaner way to move his story forward than through this mess to arrive at Jesus of Nazareth, his only begotten son, the ancestor of Perez. 
Why are these unpleasant stories included in Scripture? I ask myself that all the time. And why are the people involved, people who hurt others, even their own family members, granted the privilege of being a part of the Messianic line? Among many things, here's what I came up with. Here's the only thing that I can see that makes sense, and it's this, that God's purpose is accomplished despite humanity's unrighteousness. Can I say it again? God's purpose is accomplished despite humanity's unrighteousness. God's purpose is accomplished despite humanity's unrighteousness. Your actions cannot frustrate God's plan. Not when he's determined to do what it is he's going to do. You see, these horrid events set the stage for the fulfillment of the divine promise made to Judah's ancestors, to Abraham when God said, kings shall come forth from you, to Isaac when God said, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, to Jacob when he said, kings shall issue forth from your line. This was the fulfillment of those promises through these broken people. Now, where and how you apply this to your life is left to you. But allow me to press in to at least a few places for thought. Perhaps you have done the wrong thing for the right reasons, and you wonder if it will disrupt God's plan for your life. Perhaps you have been particularly deceitful recently, and, and it's gnawing at you, and you wonder how God feels about it, and if he's suddenly going to Stop the purpose that he has for you or it's hampered because of it. Or perhaps you feel trapped in a situation or you feel forced to lie or deceive as your only way out. And you wonder or you think that God is going to wash your hands, his hands of you on the other side of it. Perhaps you have something unpleasant or upsetting or broken or perverse or sorted in your past, in your present. And you're thinking to yourself, how could God possibly do anything through someone like me? Here's what I would say to you. That wherever Tamar's story might touch your life and story, I hope that you see that nothing you do can derail God's purposes. If something is unbelievable, ridiculous, perverse and sordid as what we just witnessed together can be the germination for the seed of Jesus, then surely there's hope for you in me. Whatever purpose God intends to accomplish through your life, you cannot frustrate that through your frailty. If that's not good news today, nothing will be. Because what we know, what we know is that from this man, who sold his brother into slavery, who raised two incredibly wicked sons, who lied and deceived his daughter-in-law, who withheld the rights that she had, who then bought his daughter-in-law as a prostitute and impregnated her. 
from this man proceeded Jesus, who God gave to the world for the sins of the world. And if God can initiate the greatest, most history altering event in eternity out of the line of something so broken. Surely, surely, surely he can do something remarkable through you and through me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for putting the ugly things in the Bible. Oh, I know it doesn't sound like it makes any sense. But God, there is so much ugliness in the world. There is so much ugliness in our life. If the Bible was only filled with the pretty and the clean, then we would believe that other people were the standard and not Jesus. So thank you for the ugliness in the Bible. And thank you for showing us that you use ugly moments and ugly people to produce beautiful things. Might our hearts be enlivened by that truth now. In Jesus' name.